Welcome to the Postpunk Podcast, episode number three. Today, we have one of our co-hosts joining us, contributing editor Thomas Tisson, whose vast CV or resume, depending on where you hail from, has a many wearing many fields of the Nephilim-sized <laughs> hats, from journalist to music promoter to DJ and more. Yes, I think one could call Thomas the MacGyver of goth. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> Maybe I'm the Popeye of post-punk or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I have been called many things, but that's definitely a first. So uh, uh, I tip my non-existing cap right now. Thank you for that. <laughs> and um, for all of you first-time listeners out there, uh, the voice you've just heard belongs to none other than the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, postpunk.com himself, Mr. Alex Baker. Alex, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to today's uh, episode, the first one uh, we've done together. And uh, I think we can consider ourselves lucky that our uh, esteemed guest for today is none other than the uh, founding member, uh, singer and mastermind behind and of the uh, Dutch dark wave legendary band, the clan of Zymox, Mr. Ronnie Moorings. Yeah, and today's interview with Ronnie is special as it's a rare occasion where he talks in depth about the formation of clan of Zymox and also the production of the band's first two albums, including Medusa. And also he gives his thoughts on the origin of the term dark wave. And what I really liked uh, about the interview, because uh, Ronnie and I have known each other for quite some time already, um, is that he definitely pulled no punches. Uh, and I think he, he enjoyed that collective stroll down memory lane as much as we did. And um, of course, we also uh, hit a few current topics, especially... Uh, now that the Peel session of the or the Peel sessions were two of them of uh, the Clan of Cymox are finally being uh, released on vinyl, so we uh, had to talk about that as well. And uh, he gave us a little insight into the recordings. Uh, yeah, that happened uh, more than thirty years ago. And now here's the interview. Incoming transmission. Maybe we can start from the beginning. Uh, can you tell us about the formation of Clan of Zymox and Atlip? Just what were you doing at the time that you formed the band? Well, it was really like forming a band from uh, day one. It's like uh, <clears throat> first started with my own uh, thing uh, on a four track experimenting with music. I wanted to bring that uh, into live situations. So I asked my uh, then girlfriend, Anke Woolworths, to play the bass in uh, live, and so she joined me there. And then I recorded the uh, subsequent Pleasure uh, mini album, and I asked her to sing a song on one of these tracks, which uh, ended up in uh, Call It Weird. Um, after that, I... Um, well, so the two of us were then the band. We played already live a bit, like here and there in Holland, in our student town, Nijmegen and such. Um, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> then in my student town also, I met some uh, 
English people. I thought they were the Cocteau twins, and so I approached them. Um, but they happened to be the Dead Can Dance, and they told me they were supporting the Cocteau twins in my club, Dornerosje. So I said, well, um, at the time I was already living in Amsterdam, but I said, like, uh, can you put me on the guest list? And they, they did. And after that, after the concert, we talked a bit more, but uh, they blew me away with that because I'd never even heard of Dead Can Dance at that time. And they were like, yeah. No one heard of them. They were just sport acts uh, trying to get their act together. And uh, it was like, I loved it. So we kept in contact and I gave them my subsequent pleasure final or EP uh, because I was actually in the reason why I was back in my hometown was to uh, promote this uh, record for pirate radios and stuff like that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's it. That's it in brief. That's the really the how it started. There are actually... Um conflicting uh, figures when you try to uh, look up the history of Clan of Zymox on, absolutely. on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And since since you were there from its inception, um, there, I mean, Subsequent Pleasures came out in 1984, Three. if I'm not mistaken. 93, okay. Uh, 1983, yeah. okay. So that, of course, means uh, that these songs were written um, prior to 1983 and there um, I read somewhere that it is actually that you that the formation of back then it was just Zymox and not Clan of Zymox for the subsequent CP that it was already in 1981 is that true? Well, I started in 1981 with, uh, okay. demoing, with demoing songs. I actually sold some demos, um, you know, the cassettes. Yeah. Like that was kind of hip in those days to make your own cassettes. And I sold maybe like 30 or 40 of them to, to people who were, were kind of interested. And so that was actually pre <laughs> subscribe yeah. places. I still do have those recordings. Maybe one day for fun, I'll release them. But so far, I don't think it's, uh, to me, it's like, you know, I'm doing this and that. Why should I delve in the past? Yeah. I have better things to do than correcting sure. the whole history of the band or, or make yeah. it for complete, it's totally complete. <laughs> yeah. Maybe happy later. 40th anniversary then, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> happy 40th. Yeah. Is it? Yes. Yes. It is. If you say 81, yeah. like to yeah. me, to me, um, and I know also know why the confusion was with the start of the band, because actually partly my doing, because I wanted to have the band as brand new. So in mm-hmm. the day that we released subsequent places, I, I'd say, well, okay, we formed in uh, 83, 84, this came out, 85, we got signed by 4AD. The sequence is much faster than if you say, well, slowly we start in 81, there's like a hiatus of like two years or so. It's like nothing happened. Not then, really, you know. no. And yeah. how, how could things? Because I actually was on the studying at the time and it was like a hobby of mine just to make music, not not to counting on that I would be a recording artist. I actually never counted on that fact. Was, the only label was interested was uh, my own label, was me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is the definition of DIY. I mean... You know, yeah. if, if nobody wants it, fuck it, them, it, I'll do it, it myself. It was kind of the 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 in the, the spirit of the times because there's like all these uh, punk labels coming up uh, in England, it was exploding and the attitude is like what the big companies can do, we can do ourselves. And I was one of those sure. like, what they can do, I can do. <laughs> and it was kind of a simple procedure. You record your music and uh, invest some money in uh, having it printed. And uh, but the whole process, of course, was like totally uh, a learning process. And uh, interesting to see how and what uh, happens when you record music and you want to bring it to someone who doesn't know your band. And that whole process was uh, sure. illuminating for me. Also, because actually I was interested in it because I was doing actually at, at the time media studies. So. 
it's kind of like uh, at the same time I wanted to write a thesis about that, but uh, yeah. I never came to it. <laughs> <laughs> because of rock and roll. Yeah. Because of that, yes. Um, the origin of the name, I mean, you have uh, told that story, of course, throughout the, the decades, mm. <laughs> but still we need to have this on our podcast. Can you just at least briefly touch on how that uh, wonderful name of Zymox was born, <laughs> what the idea was? And, well, uh, some, someone wrote once in a review that we should boil in patchouli oil before choosing this name because it was so hard to remember. I thought uh, that was a very good quote kind of thing. <laughs> But uh, the explanation of, of Zymox, uh, I mean, I started with the name Zymox, was um, because I had a band in my hometown called Zymotics. And um, but of course, I abandoned that name a long time ago. But I, I was playing with that word because it was the last word in the alphabet. And I thought, well, why not change it into a more unique name? And so zymot Zymotic is like a contagious disease, like uh, someone to infect you infect well like in this case with music and um, so I bastardized the word with the uh, the X on both sides so it looked more like barbed wire it was in the in those days all kind of a hip symbol to have a barbed wire kind of integrated in something yeah because it was like sign of yeah. uh, restriction or, or even of uh, resistance and things like that not that I ended up a political band of course but it's like that was the idea behind it and uh, later on the I added clan off because I thought I'm Zymox and people joining me will be the clan. clan. Okay. So yeah. that's that was the whole idea behind clan of Zymox. It's very distinctive, yeah. right? I mean, still up to this day. I mean, you have yeah. so many band names that sound derivative, you know, mm. but I, there has never been something to the effect of clan of Zymox ever, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a compliment to you, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, cheer luck though. Yeah, but isn't it all about luck in the end? I mean, it, it's it's part of the creative process, right? Absolutely. It's like uh, every time you write a song and you find a good melody or a good tune or the right chords and the right mood, it's all to do with inspiration and, uh, and perseverance. Yeah. Speaking of inspiration, I mean, when, when you guys started working on Subsequent Pleasures, of course, that was the heyday of the whole post-punk new wave thing mm -hmm. when everything started to boil and you could tell that internationally... Um, something bigger was going on. What were your main influences and main inspirations back then? I mean, nowadays or over, over the course of the next nearly 40 years, you have inspired many, many musicians down the line. Oh. But back in the day, who were you inspired by? That goes back like to, to the age of three, really. It's just like I was kind of like being always interested in music. So I started growing up with the Beatles and Stones like everyone else uh, who was born in the early 60s and uh, carried on to the more metal bands was then the only alternative type of music apart from psychedelic or yeah. into going into Pink Floyd's and but even my dad had Pink Floyd so that was not that hip in my eyes <laughs> but from the other hand later I appreciate Pink Floyd just the same thing is from there on uh, going into the end of the 70s you had the punk movements and uh, the the wave uh, came up uh, new romantics and all that uh, became very important and then I was like around 17 18 uh, influencing me in that way that I, I knew that was the alternative music uh, appealing to me the most also the simplicity of it all and from there on going into the 80s with the known bands like Joy Division and Cure, Sisters of Mercy, Depeche Mode and all the others who were around and, and were 
breaking it uh, in the top 40. So was, that was uh, yeah. kind of like almost for alternative uh, kids, that was the music you listened to. And from there on, you are possibly specializing a bit more, looking for other bands and to enrich your musical taste basically so that's that's how it came about and in the, in the, in the process you were starting your own band and being part of that kind of uh, movement just the same then absolutely before the the reissues of subsequent pleasures uh it seems like that was a really highly sought after collector's item that was really hard to find for a, quite a long time wasn't it it was deliberately so because i only printed 500 and i never wanted to print more than that um yeah Smart <laughs> In the time of the release, uh, it was like I sold that album in two weeks. I had contacts in Paris then um, with a band called Invisible, but um, the DJ, he also had a, a program on the on the radio, just like uh, in Paris. Um, he played the record and I could sell immediately 100 uh, copies there. <laughs> I went to Rough Trade, uh, known for t- buying anything. <laughs> At the time, as long as it looked cool. So they mm-hmm. bought me a uh, hundred. The rest I actually sold in Germany uh, by uh, some guys in Essen. Uh, mm-hmm. They were doing mail order. And I like possibly like 40 copies left in Holland, which I sold in uh, locally in record stores I knew personally. And that was it. <laughs> so everything was sold. I didn't want to later on. I never wanted to reprint because uh, I was kind of embarrassed about the whole little subsequent pleasure thing if, if you listen to it also these were actually just my demos just like Mosquito is a yeah. good example of it how that um, developed uh, during the years and how it came about in, on the uh, Loneliest Nice or recordings uh, you, you'll hear the intermission between like how it's been played in a, in a fast way for example in uh, the John Peel sessions we did mm. but I think the, the best version to me it's still uh, yeah for 480 basically mm. but, um, that's I think that's how it's supposed to be in the end but you, I mean you have a, a proper studio in those days it was not available only your four track and you do your best to bounce and to uh, record it but you don't really have an idea how and what basically it's a Songwriting, you also have to learn a bit and be also a bit more detailed about things. And that's that's what you get later in life and uh, during the years. And the song in that way can also develop for the be- for the better. And in this case, sure. it, it did. It wasn't like uh, that I could not recreate that same atmosphere in, uh, in Subsequent Pleasure. I just didn't want it. I thought it could be better. So therefore... <laughs> I did not want to re-record that. Um, so I did, like, in the end, two versions of um, the subsequent pleasure I read it, like, going round. So I did actually mm-hmm. three versions in the end. The last version I liked the best. And um, actually the 97 version I also liked because it was, like, the more, like, uh, heavy uh, guitar mm-hmm. sounds uh, integrated in, into that song. It was, like, more playful. And later on, what I released a couple of years ago was uh, just more like... Uh, uh, recreating the track how it's supposed to be like in the 80s so there you have three versions of, of that and the other three I, I just leave them <laughs> as they are <laughs> as I have a little um, uh, side note to that whole uh, subsequent pleasures myth because yeah. I once saw uh, an, an original copy of the EP and that was in the late 90s mm. in the pre-Euro days at the Sounds record shop in Fenlo because I grew up right next to the German-Dutch border. Yeah, yeah. 
and in sounds uh, in the sounds record shop in Fender, which was like a, a place of pilgrimage for record collectors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they had one copy on their top shelf, and it uh, cost seven hundred and fifty guldos. I know. And it was yeah, and I was always standing oh. in front of there. I was like, holy shit! Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, I, th so, I think might be even um, worth more now. Yeah. yeah, never had like uh, the. I only have the reissue. Never got the original copy. But Brandon yeah. Perry of Dead Can Dance then can be very proud because he can probably pay his mortgage with his uh, <laughs> with his original <laughs> copy that you gave to him as a present, right? You yeah. mean he hasn't sold his church yet? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You actually um, mentioned um, meeting Brandon Perry and Lisa Jarrett um, when they were supporting Cocteau Twins. Later on, um, if I'm not mistaken, they invited you guys as their special guests yeah. on, on their tour. Was that also the time when you met uh, Ivo from 4AD for the first time or was that already happening prior to this? Uh, no, I have to delve really th deeper. I think I never met Ivo. No, I, I never met Ivo in connection with uh, Brandon. We... Oh, okay. um, I mean, I came over to uh, to England a lot, and st I could stay with Brendan and Lisa in, in their flat building in the Isle of Dogs, and I would just uh, stay there and go out and mind my own business. But I wasn't really oh, and going to Rough Trade, for the example, with with a hundred copies. That's that was in those days. Um, okay. They Brendan offered me uh, to go on tour with them. And uh, there was like 10 dates were planned in England. Um, in the end, uh, we were going over with a van, with our own van to, on a ferry. And everything was quite expensive, um, I know. And, but of course, we had 10 gigs to do, we would earn some money. But in the end, the whole tour got nearly canceled. It was like, uh, I think one or two shows uh, happened in the end. And there was like in, one in a small pub uh, where like we had to put some planks in, on the stage because otherwise you could fall through. Uh, I asked where's the dressing room and I was already used to a bit better clubs in Holland. So it's like, you know, everyone <laughs> would have a dressing room in a normal stage where you could actually stand on. And he it's about the only room we have is uh, behind our door. There was like just uh, the beer uh, fast standing there. <laughs> There's a, no space you could actually retreat. But uh, anyway, um, that was like all part of the, the British old touring uh, circuit. And Brendan uh, was very apologetic about it. And actually, uh, he paid out of his own pocket uh, our expenses uh, back because that wasn't really like covering it for what we earned there. All in all, it was a, a fun thing to do. I remember his mother uh, making sandwiches for the guys, uh, <laughs> giving a bit, well, going on tour. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's all uh, nice and sweet and English and uh, or Irish. I bet they were matter. delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get any. <laughs> 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 it was just, just, just for, for little Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Just imagining nowadays um, the mere fact that actually Dead Can Dance as well as Clan of Zymox were in the same build playing in a British pub <laughs> yeah, yeah. is something, you know, that, that seems so scripted, you know. And yeah, on the other in, hand, in those yeah. days, they were a guitar band. Yeah. So it's like yeah, the first sure. album yeah, yeah. was like totally guitar based. Only yeah. I think even we might be a little bit responsible for the fact that uh, he was, uh, he never heard about sampling and we had all our samplers uh, with and explained him uh, how to to work like and uh, sample things yeah. and he got kind of interested in that so the second album was totally like sample based 
Yeah. Thank you for inspiring him. <laughs> pretty much left out. Yeah. I don't know if that's the truth, yeah. but I mean, uh, uh, I can only recall what what happened in those days. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, it's like well, actually, I I I did regret it because actually I liked the guitar-based songs uh, yeah. of of the first album. And of course, I loved the se- the second and third just the same. It's like it's different. Um, yeah. But uh, to totally abolish uh, would have been also a bit uh, too much yeah. in my eyes. So anyway, it's. Uh, his music, their music, and because now they drifted off to something, uh, the realm I can't even understand anymore. So, yeah, you know, musicians. <laughs> freedom of music is always freedom. very important, and the, I think the most important is that you yourself have to be very interested or interested in what you create. Because if Absolutely. you can't, if you're not interested, then you can't create genuine music. So yes, you have to uh, stand behind it, and if you change, uh, if your t- taste changes, then so be it. I mean, I've had those people is the same want to do something totally different was not interested in my past and did something totally uh, off the wall and regretted it later came back to where i thought well maybe i should not have doubted myself and the direction i was uh, actually in so yeah but i mean this this is something that's, that happened to a lot of artists especially in the early to mid 90s right where there was this phase i mean we're jumping now nearly a decade ahead but this mm. is i think that it's 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 totally understandable that for instance you, you wanted to try something different after you pretty much were one of the original acts that paved the way for so many others and before you get bored doing the same stuff i can well, totally um, yeah. understand that trying around with different genres and and new things that have come up in the meantime with these zeitgeist and everything is to me perfectly understandable. Yeah, because you want to actually, like I know in the 80s, in the end of the 80s, I thought like we have to do something new for the 90s. It's like a new decade. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of new exciting things going on and you felt like you had to uh, embrace that that movement just the same because it was also alternative. Also yeah. uh, in clubs, uh, that was the alternative music then. Uh, it's almost like 80s music was in the 90s almost passé so in order to also have a lifeline in the 90s you also felt you had to um, look at different corners uh, in your own music and uh, that's that's sure that's what i did just the same yeah but now uh, getting back to the 80s <laughs> <laughs> okay. to have some to keep the uh, lineage here we were talking about uh, evo cutler did you already back in the day know when signing with 4ad that this is actually like a quote unquote big thing because i mean they even back back then their their roster it wasn't very stacked so they had a very broad variety of different artists from all kinds of alternative playing fields to, to be honest i had no idea as like i knew <laughs> the cocktail twins and that can answer with both bands i loved a lot and those were my favorite bands at uh, at 4d i i didn't even know they uh, he, he uh had like one single with Bauhaus, which was of course the Beggar's Banquet and 4D were in the same building. So it, it's all kind of like an inbred situation there. <laughs> and he got the opportunity to to write uh, to sign his own bands later on. And but the importance I I actually did not realize until I later talked about it with people and they telling me like yeah, but also this band and that band. And but in the meantime, I actually already talked to Ivo, and I was just uh, maybe it, is, it was also a good thing that I did not know the the importance of that label that much because otherwise uh, I would have been maybe too restricted uh, with my answering of questions or, or approaching him or I don't know how my reactions would have been now I was just uh, I was just myself talked to him I was actually moaning and groaning about uh, the Dutch 
situation or the music scene and how bad it was. And I, I think maybe because of my nagging about this whole situation, he said like he felt like uh, he had to help me in some way and uh, <laughs> asked me to send a, a demo of. And that's that's what I did at the time because like I did try to get a, a demo over to EMI in Holland and they were the slightest uh, interested in it. So I, th I think that was the reason why I was started moaning to Ivo. And because I knew uh, his name from Brandon and Brandon told me why don't you give him a call yeah. and Brandon did the pre-work he said well one day Ronnie is going to call you so so that all clicked in at the same time but the main click is of course that he actually liked the demos <laughs> to record them so if if it wasn't for that then of course uh, that was the end of the story how nice of a guy I would have been uh, or how much I would nag about Holland uh, <laughs> I could include an England in the list but you know yeah. uh, the music had to speak for itself definitely were you given a lot of freedom when you signed the deal with 4AD? Because, the, you know, your demos were very experimental. So it just seems uh, kind of in the first album was very experimental for that matter. Well, the first, the, the songs came about like they were first synthy based. So uh, it was it like, uh, it was like very Spartan uh, and later um, I wanted to play them live. So we were rehearsing them with the band in this in the rehearsing studio. So there, the more live instruments came involved like bass guitar the guitars for everyone having to do something on stage so it's like it would be not like just a boring synthesizer band and um, that's how that got worked out a bit better we, we play also these songs live and in a lot of different versions and in the end in the studio uh, it still started to develop because there was equipment I've never had in my life before like a, a main ingredient of the Palladium studios in, in Scotland was that they had a course keyboard the quiz file was at that time not affordable i have two here now in my studio <laughs> at that, <laughs> that time no one could actually buy them samplers like uh, sampling more than uh, over a second or so that was like unheard of mm -hmm. uh, you could actually like sample um, and make create your own drum sounds because we had like just a, a rhythm box and we wanted to have a bigger actually John Fryer wanted to have a bigger uh, sounding drum kit so he proposed to sample that later on in the mix mm -hmm. uh, he was but he was a part of the actual recording Ivo was at the, the Palladium Studios in in Scotland uh, together with the, the house engineer Keith and the owner uh, John Turner. John Turner was the uh, was a keyboard player for Demis Rusros at the time, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's how he could afford a studio, I, I guess. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. Um, all these new equipment uh, there in the studio, from from even the, the smallest percussionist uh, things. They were like all inviting and it was like almost like uh, being in a toy store so we could experiment a lot, take that instrument instead of the keyboard we had. Uh, we also had a drummer with us which um, ended up not, could not really uh, keep the rhythm that much. Uh, so we were losing a lot of time on the rhythm part so I had to quickly program uh, the drums again. And um, so therefore it changed the game from the start of the rhythm box. We had a live drummer, so we want to actually have live drums, but it did not work in the studio. So we went back to the, the yeah. rhythm box again and so on. So it's all these processes in, 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 from, from beginning till, till the end in the studio. There, there's, there's a lot in between and a lot of things happened in between. Like had the, the, uh, Peter Newton, in the meantime, he, he left also the band already mm. in the... Uh, 
he only joined the band when uh, when he heard uh, on the radio that I signed the deal with 4AD. Then it's like, can I play keyboards again in the band? <laughs> of course, and to me it was fine because he was part of the uh, of of the, the the team when we started with, uh, playing live. There was uh, yeah. me, Anke, and Peter. We 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 played with the three of us uh, like live shows, and so I felt he was always uh, part of of also developing the sound and. So, of course, he could come back. So we were sitting there at the end with five people in the studio with one who could not be part of anymore. or So one angry drummer in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> so there was kind of like a tense situation. So we did not want to hurt him in that sense because yes. it's like uh, it would be our benefit if he, if he uh, would do all the fills and, and time and it would save us a lot of time and he would be a happy drummer. But somehow it did not work out that way. Do you believe in, in hindsight that in, just in case, just hypothetically speaking, you would have recorded the debut album, the debut full length with the live drama? I think uh, Jos Heinen or what yeah, was Jos his name, Heinen, right? Yeah. Also Heinen, from yeah. Amsterdam, yeah. Yeah. Um, with a live drama, do you believe in hindsight that because it, it, it has such a makes such a big difference to the overall sound that the impact would yeah. have been the same because to me personally especially on the first album mm -hmm. that rhythm box and all, all these especially the up tempo tracks they are so distinctive you might absolutely the first it's, time it's I like in them. hindsight I think we never would have gained that kind of um, momentum with, with yeah. the first album um, and indeed because of the fact that uh, John Fryer, was working on the on the drums so vividly and making uh, uh, choosing the right uh, samples. I mean, we were sitting there like, okay, yeah, it sounds cool. But I mean, he came up with like, hey, let's yeah. try this, let's try that, and and he did also together with uh, Ivo then the Stranger and a Day remixes they together without us being present and. They sent the end result to me, and uh, it's like I was blown away. It's like, wow, this is so yeah. cool. This, yeah. this, this, the, the rhythms were like, this struck me the most. These yeah. rhythms were like right in your face. That was totally dance floor stuff. And they, they played those tracks for, for decades to come uh, because yeah. of the sheer abrasiveness of, of these tracks. And uh, yeah, so it would be totally dull if it would be in a live drummer. Yeah. Not that I I worked with live drummers later on in the in the nights or with live shows, but you have to have a very good drummer. Will Anvers was a very good drummer. He was actually as as tight as a as a rhythm machine, and he could uh, emanate the the actual drums on in the live show and make it very interesting. Also, uh, yeah. but that that was done. Talk, we talk about a huge production year, and that later in life it also came about that not always is possible to take a, a huge production on the road if you want to and is it true that the all-in recording time for the kind of Zymox debut album was just 10 days 10 days correct that was Jesus. just the recording and yeah. the, the mixing um sure was 14 days in, in uh, blackwing studios from uh, where john fryer worked and the stack where yeah. you also had the depeche mode recordings um but that included like the vocals uh Uh, some vocals had to be redone also in the in the Blackwing uh, studios. So vocals and mixing then basically was done in the in the Blackwing studios. And the the, the instrumental layers what we did was in the Scotland. And yeah, so that was like still the, very the efficient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, that's the way Ivo preferred to work. I think he was not he was not involved in like let's say that he didn't want to stick his uh, 
fingers into the the process of recording. He was there mm. just to see if everything would run smooth, or maybe had to translate some things from Scottish to English. But it was like uh, <laughs> that all went well. Um, but he was interested in the in the in the end uh, mixes. But I stayed with Ivo, so every every night I went uh, or. Every day I went to the Blackwing Studios in the end, mixing the album together with uh, John. And I slept with Ivo uh, in, in his house and listening to the mixes and then discussing about it, um, how it uh, was going. And he listened to the mixes as well. And so, so in it, but in the end, I think he pretty much left left us what what, what we did. Yeah. Uh, especially with Medusa, I remember he wasn't too happy about the whole th- album. Actually, it's like. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> in in retrospect, it's, it's kind of like uh, I had to even go back to the drawing board with uh, the the album and okay. persuade him that uh, it would be better than. I, to me, it was the second album syndrome kind of thing. Like uh, people mm. expect uh, maybe I don't know more than what's possible or humanly mm. possible. Went back to the drawing board, could go back into the studio, and uh, in the end, uh, making drastic decisions in the, in, uh, in the studio. For example, back. Or there was there was like more vocals than before, and then the side well now has to end up with a big solo mm-hmm. in the end, and that's how Backdoor, for example, at the last uh, minute decision came about. It was that that wasn't planned. It, uh, it could have been just a nice mix, but this whole tension would have not been there mm-hmm. if it wasn't just for nah something is not right here, and so that has to be changed. And so on and so on. Uh, so Laurentine had drums on it, skip the drums, take it away and make it totally like a relaxing in, in, uh, instrumental and so on. Yeah. So it's like you had to be very decisive in the studio in those days because you had a limited amount of time. Sure. It's different now. I can go back to the track and say, no, maybe the, the kick drum, uh, I'll think about it again. And next, maybe tomorrow I'll, uh, I'll look at it. You know, so <laughs> the, 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 the time you spent on, on music is now so much different. I try to be sometimes fast and, and make fast decisions because sometimes overthinking a track is also not good and you want to have also a bit of that spontaneity uh, of, 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 of recording and and uh, and composing. So it's a fine line sometimes. I just wanted to go back a minute and mention the remix of Stranger. Yeah. To me, that is like, I, I, storm, it's, I storm the dance floor when I hear that as much as I do for Blue Monday. It is such an essential like dance track mm. for me personally. Yeah, it's uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing, yeah. It's a good like, sign. Because I was like uh, John Fry's um, uh, remix, uh, I'm sure he listened to or the day one yeah so uh, I mean I could dance to it um, and of course Stranger was also in the light of New Order yeah there's like also that that spirit of the time that you could do um, bring people to the dance floor with with, uh, with the beats and uh, yeah. without being monitored talking yeah uh, <laughs> So that was like a aim to be like having these alternative tracks and being on the dance floor. Absolutely. The video you shot for a day was uh, recorded in Spain, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Because I read that at least parts of the video were shot in the old home or in parts of the old house or something of Salvador Dali. Is that true? It was a, a discotheque actually uh, designed by uh, <laughs> okay, uh, so da- Dali. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you had like Dali's car uh, was in front of the discotheque. Yeah. yeah, the discotheque also had a swimming pool. I know I had okay. to uh, swim in there, try to mime to the to the song. Um, <laughs> those shots never worked out, unfortunately, because that was like we spent a lot of time trying to do that. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> 
Swimming um, while singing. <laughs> swimming while singing. That was also new, yeah. But uh, yeah. The, the good thing was like you could place the camera in front of the... It was also kind of a spontaneous thing because uh, you could uh, place the camera in front of that uh, pool because it was see-through. You had all these uh, dolls, puppets, I don't know, also designed by Dali. So it had these... Uh, the lights the lights had a small stage so we could do everything basically there and the town itself uh, was just uh, I think a bit above situated above uh, Barcelona so actually where Dali was uh, mm -hmm. living he had a villa there we've, we've never been itself in into the villa only our film director I think he went there but it's um, in that town we we had like a small apartment uh, we, we just looked for for locations there to, to film or our director he looked for it basically mm -hmm. it was uh, the RT guy who uh, had the vision where and what he should uh, film and we just cooperated and helped uh, making props once in a while uh, just for the video like yeah. this, this little it was like a, a, a head a uh, bit, bit of light and was like and I was going through the camera uh, look at Marilyn Manson's uh, video it has exactly the same movement yeah. <laughs> you might even <laughs> cut, cut through yeah. it anyway <laughs> It's uh, it was a fun thing to do. That was the first video. Ivo did not really. He did not uh, fund the video at the start. He did not believe in videos. Okay. And so I did. I did believe that maybe because of the media studies, that like yeah. maybe videos might be important later for a band, which already were, of course. But um, it was just at the start of the MTV. So MTV did not really have that many videos or bands at the time. Exactly. When we got finished, uh, it was actually cheap production because we had some shows in in Spain, so we could combine. The, the traveling and shooting with, with a few shows so that got funded uh, so I could fund that video with, with the proceeds of the of, mm -hmm. of the, the shows later on uh, I got that money back from Ivo because he actually liked the video a lot and <laughs> he saw the benefits and the benefits were that, that that was the first video then to be shown on MTV on a yeah. pretty high re relation everywhere uh, also in, in America so it was a good investment to do and yeah. it was a lot of fun to do we of course we wanted to have another video and that we had to wait for that uh, for I think that was done on the Zymox uh, Twist of Shadows, Shadows album yeah. that was the track Obsession yeah. again filmed in by the same director in Spain uh, but that was in Belchita that was, that was a, a small village they kept it intact it was bombed during the second uh, no not second world war the, the civil war and they kept it as a, as a monument uh, to show the Spanish people what happened when you fight each other, communist against capitalist or fascists against uh, a communist. And so the whole town was uh, shot to smithereens. So you, could even, you could even find bones there or skulls in between the stones. We did. Yeah. We saw them, we filmed them. Um, and that was like the whole thing. Um, it was beautiful from a, from, a, from a filmic point of view. It was a, a beautiful location, like uh, Terry Gilliam, for example. He filmed also in Belchita. There was the Baron from Munchausen uh, scenes there. Oh, Has the same, okay. uh, used the same cathedral as we did. We were there first though. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't bet, bet you that, that Belchita is, uh, is perfect for, for as a location to, to film uh, beautiful uh, shots. So that's where we filmed our video for the second time. Yeah. I don't think when... we did anything. Uh, no, we did not make any videos for the Medusa album. I think hence because Ivan didn't really like that album too much. <laughs> 
I was wondering at one point you filmed the uh, video for Mos- Moscovia the Skido for um, the Lonely is an Eyesore compilation. That's right. Is that yeah. in between the two albums? That was in between, yes. That was uh, just before the Medusa album. Uh, they needed uh, a track for their compilation and each track uh, would get a, a video recording. So that's that's what... Which was actually funded around. by Evil. <laughs> it was actually paid for by Evil. Yes. <laughs> Very little I've heard. <laughs> Before we uh, talk about Medusa more, I wanted to ask, uh, that's you playing bass on Seventh Time? Yeah. It's an amazing, one of my favorite bass lines yeah. of all time, yeah. I have to it's, say. It's like I decided in the studio, uh, one of these spontaneous things, like uh, the synthesizer. I was okay, but it's like, it didn't excite me as a song. It was like all too, too uh, poppy in my ear. So I thought, well, why not muck it up and make it like, Get the bass, but put a distortion over it. Yeah, uh, make it heavy, heavy laden. Just to try, and uh, it worked. But only it worked with with the heavy drums. Yeah, like it would not have worked if it wasn't uh, if it's just with like a weak little Roland uh, rhythm box. So it's this. Uh, so this combination that was the driving mechanism behind that the the whole song in the end and then of course the melodies and everything stayed but uh, i think that was the the, the basic the, the the core the basic had to be changed and that made it all work perfectly in my ears i cannot still get over the fact that evil cutler wasn't happy with medusa so we need to talk about that album <laughs> um, i i have what's yeah i have what's yeah, yeah sorry what's yeah sorry <laughs> and um yeah. because um to me that to me, just personally, that was my that that was my gateway drug to Clan of Cymox. Before I heard mm-hmm. anything else, I heard um, the whole Medusa album on a on a tape that a friend of mine recorded for me, and he said you have to listen to this. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm not romanticizing uh, romanticizing this in, in in hindsight, but to me, this it's still one of the most beautiful collections of sad songs in a row, <laughs> <laughs> upbeat and downbeat songs I've ever heard. And um, as much as I love the debut, uh, Medusa is probably still because. Maybe because I heard it first, it's always the same, you know, when you're in, mm. in that age. It's yeah. still my favorite album from the first until the very last second, I think. I, I think There's... because that album, maybe it appeals to you that in that, that sense, the mood, because there were so many uh, personal problems in the band. My problem with with Anke, for example, the relationship stopped already before that 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 uh, album, and um, those those feelings you translate also in into songs. It's the, I mean, it's not going to be called Anke or something. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be it could, uh, feelings get integrated in songs. Uh, also, the, like so, basically, the whole band was not really gelled together, and uh, was only ready to to end up actually after that album mm. um, because of the uh, maybe too many. Egos also got involved. Uh, too many people want to do things because Peter wants to have their own, his own songs. Anka wanted to have their own songs. I wanted to do what I always do and write songs. And um, I think there were too many captains on board, or wanted want to be captains on board, and therefore we want to. Um, there was this this turmoil, and that that kind of maybe was felt by Ivo in the beginning when the songs were there. I said, "Well, uh, they have to be better." So I had to. Um, make also the decision just to uh, to go on my own in the studio and work them out in a better way and uh, disregard every, everyone and they were not happy about it, uh, of course, but that had to be done. 
because um, I still said that Klenozymax was my thing mm. and my responsibility and my baby. And yeah. um, I would not let that go to waste if, if uh, anything uh, would happen with also with 4AD because like I felt like uh, 4AD was, uh, the deal was jeopardized by if your label boss doesn't really like what you're doing, then the next thing is, you know, you're going to be uh, out of it. And yeah. um, that, that later on, but I also had a, a kind of a bad feeling with Ivo because like in the end, I did like the album. I think he did also, but I've never really got that that feeling that I could convince him completely. But he did anyway what, what he said he would. Of course, he's an English gentleman and he said like, I record an album, he does. And But later on, um, I got a chance to um, record a, the, a mini album I wanted to do, the, uh, the Blind Hearts uh, Million Things uh, EP. And then I worked with uh, another producer, John Fryer. He, I got him because Brandon Perry already worked with him. He uh, recommended to work with uh, John. What did I say, John Fryer? No, John Rivers. John Rivers, yeah. John, John Rivers, Rivers in, yeah. in Lebington Spa. Mm -hmm. And um, there I got uh, in contact with uh, the manager of uh, Love and Rockets at the time, the, the former Bauhaus. And he felt that uh, yeah, Simux could do so much better if we had a better label and better management. And uh, okay, the management I could agree on because I was the management. I <laughs> I arranged everything, and I felt like if I wanted to something, for example, things in America, um, then yeah, maybe you need some professionals there. And if you want to be signed by a major label, you also need uh, someone who knows their way. And yeah. so I decided to go with Raymond Koffer. And that's that's why we not were involved with um, 4D after after that EP anymore because I wanted to uh, sign with a major label. Maybe in the end, I've in retrospect, I thought, well, that wasn't really necessarily the wisest decision. Maybe I should have stuck to 4D and uh, carried on with it. From the other hand, you can't just uh, drift on the same sentiments all the time. Uh, at a time, Agreed. major labels were the next exciting thing to do for, for an indie label is to everyone else in England, they're aspiring. The only as aspiration you have is to be scooped up by a big major label, so it's Geffen or Polygram or whatever. And when we played in, in America, five of these labels were present at the live show and they all want, wanted to sign us so we, we were in a position just to choose the best one for us yeah. with the most freedom and uh, budget and from there on it's then the 90s already again yeah but still and I mean Twist of Shadows I think up to this day up to this day is still at least commercially the most successful album isn't it yeah in terms of just sold units and everything yeah because uh, that's that's the uh, the thing is because you have a, a major label behind you major sure. label can promote you better distribute you better and therefore in the end your sales will be higher than if you would be on the on an indie label or a smaller indie label it's a, a given thing that's just the nature of the beast i wanted to ask about the uh your blind heart cp is that is that the versions that we hear on the medusa cd yes that's that was released on the vinyl and uh, uh, later on 
yeah, they just banged it on a on a on a Medusa album. Um, not necessarily the best choice in in my opinion, because I think Medusa album should be should have been a Medusa album as it is, with just ten tracks and have the EP. Uh, yeah, I don't know as as the EP, you forget about it. Because later on we did those million things and Blind Heart got recorded for the the Twisted Shadows album, and we got per- kind permission to do that from uh, from the publishers. And uh, so those versions were a new versions were already on the on the Twisted Shadow so there was not really a need in, in my eyes to bang that on the on the CD. From the other hand, for completist also fine. But you have to understand <laughs> after the tenth track it stops and then you have the EP. Exactly. So I wanted to ask um you're credited as coining the genre of dark wave and it relates to your uh peel session, which was uh was in eighty five or was in the uh, sometime in the end of eighty five? There were two peel sessions. Right. They were like um, 85 and 87, I think. It's like so because you have like the, the first album, you have three mm-hmm. songs, and the Medusa album, also three songs. So, like two sessions. And they were banged together as the Peel sessions later on. I think in the, the 90s, they decided to release that on the CD. Do you have any memories or recollections of how the legend starts that John Peel coined the term dark wave for Clan of Zymox? Because I can't find any information about, about this on the internet, just rumors I, and stories. <laughs> that, that would be done rumors and stories because... Uh, I point one. I've never met John Peel in real life. Just a bunch of technicians in the in in the, the BBC studios, just doing their job by recording and uh, and mixing the tracks. And later on, um, it was broadcast on on the on the radio. But I was living in Holland, so I could not even uh, listen live to it. I do think I have somewhere a cassette somewhere with with him talking about it. But uh, then I would have to listen specifically for those words, and uh, I. Yeah. First, I have to find those cassettes somewhere, and <laughs> life is short. Yeah, that's true. Those are beautiful versions, by the way. I mean, yeah. um, there are loads of my favorite artists who, back in the day, did those Peel sessions. I think yeah. there, for each and every artist or band, there are always one or two songs that I sometimes even like or appreciate even more than the album or single versions or something mm-hmm. because of the, I don't know if it's the rawness or just the life to tape factor, I don't know. But um, I think both sessions um, have absolute like highlights you know, with it, mm. especially Muscovit Mosquito, as you just said, because it's it's a I don't know if it's how how much faster it is, but I think it's the fastest <laughs> version, <laughs> probably. And um, this really excited me when that CD came out back in the '90s, so I had to, to buy it right away. But now, mm. I mean, this is also um, one of the reasons why we're talking today to each other is this whole the whole peel sessions are being reissued again, yeah. re-released. So um, if you want to uh, touch on that briefly, this is your chance to do it. Um, well, I'm very happy there's a, finally a vinyl version from it because mm-hmm. like um, seems like everyone uh, is releasing vinyl and I have a record player here at home and collect uh, the vinyls as well. It's like a, so as a completist for my own work, I would like to have that <laughs> in my collection. I don't think I would actually play it that often because it's. Um, I play these tracks so often live that that uh, the live tracks uh, have formed its own form now uh, the way I play them live then I played them in those days because those versions would only irritate me at the moment I think uh, than <laughs> the versions I'm playing now I also have to say that I, I saw the inner lining uh, notes which like uh, I've read that uh, that Anke thought there would be that uh, there were computers uh, being programmed in the studio which is 
absolutely not true because the first computer I had was a Commodore 64, which is like only started using uh, for Twist of Shadows. Mm. All the material for for self-titled album and Medusa, there were no computers involved. It was just sequencing a rhythm box and hand plate. And it could not even be the case if, if you think about taking a computer to BBC Studios and taking all your equipment and connecting it is it's like you'll take it will take you more than like four hours but we were touring it in those days in england that's why ivo uh, set up these skill sessions like would be like playing live we would have the band already there mm -hmm. with our equipment we would play live so it was like our live equipment which we used which of course, we were playing all these songs live just the same. So it would be, it was just an extra show for us at the John Peel uh, session. So no computer programming or whatsoever, not there. And there were also not male white chauvinists, absolutely not true either. They were actually yeah. very nice, gentle uh, people working there, being very kind and patient with us. That, okay. uh, I have to... I have to, these interlining notes that I think that irritated me the most is like, there's no way. Okay. So about maybe, you know, how recollections go for people like this, sure. making their own versions of it. But I assure you, no computers there. Since Alex asked you about the coining of the term dark wave and seeing how that term has evolved throughout the decades, even up until now, 2021, you know, um, yeah. a little time, a little while later, um, it seems as you have gone now full circle, especially with the uh, last two albums, because you also uh, really embraced that kind of new generation of dark wavy bands who did uh, remixes for you. Um, she passed away and so on. And the Twin Tribes from the US and absolutely all, all the bands I love yeah all the and bands isn't I it I mean it, it, isn't it it's kind of it's it's kind of like a, it must be at least a, a certain bit irritating that all these bands of course they have been majorly influenced by Clan of Cymox <laughs> if they if they were denying this they would have like Pinocchio noses from hmm. from here until they know Brazil you know <laughs> and um is this, is this, um, I don't even know how to put this into words. Isn't this, it's, it must be on the, on the one hand, it's, it must be really fulfilling to see that after so many years and decades, um, the, the, the reach as an artist you've, you've had throughout the past decades has been international and you've, you've influenced, uh, many different artists from Turkey to Italy <laughs> to the U.S. <laughs> And all these bands nowadays found their own niche, their own way. And uh, while incorporating all these certain elements that certainly were, you know, at least you, you've left a mark on, on certain elements in that kind of music. So I'm just wondering two questions. What led to this whole going full circle again with the last past two albums? Because to me, it's the it's the exact, I don't know, you found the perfect balance between the old school clan of Zymox and still a very modern, Done 21st century kind of dark wavy whatever sound I don't want to pigeonhole too much here and uh, the second question is do you will you go on on that path uh, is this something where you found your um, you know I don't know is, is this is this the, the calling for Clan of Zymox in 2021 to be um, you know this, this, the spearhead maybe even for all these younger bands I don't know um, <clears throat> the spearheading I think uh, these mm -hmm. bands just influenced me just the same yeah. I think it's come full circle. Like, let's say they know our band from the past. They make their own versions, interpret 
the, the music, I, I will reinterpret their music again and let me being inspired by them again, like, and, and also rediscover my own taste again. Like, like it's, that's the beauty of music. You can build on and keep on building on your taste and, uh, appreciation of, of, uh, use of instruments or the way you use your instruments and let yourself being influenced or being open for for outside influences has always been a part of uh Simons that I always wanted to get other things into in there just to see if that works uh, with even the, the blueprint or the ground layer of what Simons is about to answer your question of if that's the blueprint for the next album the next album is already written Thomas oh, of course because uh, you're so busy all the time <laughs> And the yeah. album is already uh, being pinpointed to come out in July. Oh, uh, this year? This year. The single, a new single Jesus. will come out um, early, uh, the 7th of May. Uh, we just uh, picked a, a date. Mm -hmm. So the question, uh, to answer your question, the, the style is very much in uh, the dark wave, yes. Yeah. So, okay. But it's, it's like this album this new album is going to be totally different because it's like just one mood and you can okay. imagine what mood that would be. <laughs> After one year of Corona and COVID-19, I guess it's going to be a happy rave album or something like that. Like, it's <laughs> going to be like about all these feelings you okay. boiled up and it yeah. um, uh, doesn't mean that you have to have like heavy tracks, uh, but it's, yeah. uh, I think I, I got, uh, I'm, I'm very, very excited. Uh, about it to, to release these things so maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm right we'll see uh, but I think it's uh, this is what kept me sane for, for this year by not being able to play live okay we were let out in, in, in the summer we could do here and there a show and, and breathe a bit and uh, yeah. have contact with the audience here and there and it was like almost like you had to be happy for that and be thankful for <laughs> the government that they let you do your, your thing yeah. but anyway and then being locked up of course uh, again in uh, November till Kingdom no. Come because we don't know uh, when when we are able to do things. I mean, every day I'm setting dates back and back and back. And today again, June for Spain would be, uh, we all thought, well, of course, next year, everything will be gone. No, it's going to be now 2022 in June and yeah. so on. So you keep doing this. So to keep your sanity and to, or, or vent even, uh, you have to write a musician. What do you do when you're frustrated? Like, let's say in Medusa time, I was frustrated uh, uh, very much about with people and now I'm frustrated with humanity. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's see, let's see how this goes. Uh, but yeah, some, uh, that's what I do. I also do the video shoots, uh, uh, myself because mm -hmm. uh, that I find that exciting to just to uh, concentrate on those things as well just as a extension of, of uh, music and see if mm -hmm. you can do, put some images to it and keeps me off uh, keeps me on the street actually yeah, <laughs> yeah. instead of off the street <laughs> Um, I mean, you've you've now you've been living in Leipzig now for for many many years already. Uh, when when we are talking about Leipzig, you have to talk about the uh, BGT, and of course, it will not happen this year. It will never ever happen, unfortunately, um, with all the you know hygiene concepts, social distancing mm. concept that you would need to have in place and order for so many different venues. But still, um, just uh, a person, very personal question. I mean, I, I you told me in person that you loved living in Leipzig uh, when I was also living in Leipzig. Yeah. And um, you've stayed there all, all the time. And um, is there is there something um, so special about that city that makes 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 living there for you, apart from all the, apart from 
music that or the scene that is not happening mm. right now anyways because of the whole mess we're in but just the, the city and its people that is so appealing to you that it, that you actually chose this to be your maybe even permanent home well it's a, talk about home this is where i have my home and yeah. um, actually uh, bought a, a home here in leipzig and um, that's why we live here still because i love the space i love love the architecture of, of yeah. uh, our building and um, and all its possibilities it gives and and the, the the freedom and the space which I could never find in London nor yeah. in Amsterdam they were like um, I can't even compare it, uh, how how you can live in, in London or Amsterdam compared to here in Leipzig with uh, yeah. uh, because there when I was living in Amsterdam or London it was like the space was so small you had to everything was cramped uh, you could hear too many people around you and uh, you don't have that secondly Leipzig have um, it's one of the most beautiful towns in, in Germany the the, uh, the some the, the has the most monumental buildings of the whole Germany everywhere you go it's beautiful it's uh, some call it also the, the mini Paris of East Germany or and you have also the canals everywhere mm -hmm. you can also have a little Venice uh, sometimes it's also called and they're opening more and more canals again which they, they closed up in the, the DDR times so the green the amount of green available is especially this year was you could appreciate people appreciate it because that's the only yeah. thing you were allowed to is if you go outside is uh, you had to go and get some fresh air and that it was accepted to do that in the, in a park so in leipzig you have woods and parks going through the cities and you could stay in the greens and stay away from people wherever you want and um, there was also a, a big benefit from living in a green city you can also cycle a lot uh, without having to go up uh, major hills or uh, being in, in to traffic every time so it's all these little or well, huge benefits for me in that in that sense it's like uh, uh, i could never have enough of leipzig i feel totally at home i would uh, use i'm still using this as a base also i think for ben's perspective using leipzig as a basis because why use all the distribution companies leipzig as a, a base because it's mm. mid-europe these days when i lived when i started living in leipzig it was the the end of europe was uh, uh, East Germany, but now it's Hungary, Romania, Czech Bulgaria, Republic, yeah. Poland, everything added to it. So Leipzig is spot in the middle. We are the center of the universe of Europe, basically. Yeah. And that makes it so uh, unique and therefore also easy for a band to tour because you could go south, left. It's all kind of the same distance and easy to, to reach. I remember when I used to live in, in Amsterdam, you had to go to Berlin. It was like uh, nine, ten hours drive before you get there you know it's like and then you have to go way back now it's you know one hour's drive from here and like a lot of major towns are not too far away from here and yeah so it's uh, to me it's a center home but the, the main reason is I just like my home where I live I would uh, yeah. be crazy to get rid of it they should make you an ambassador of the city <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely yeah now you make me reminisce uh, about my old days there, you know, that's, uh, it's, I haven't done that in a long time, but you're uh, perfectly right in, in so many things that you just said. So that was also a personal trip down memory, memory lane. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to be honest, at first we were looking, when we were in Amsterdam, looking at Berlin. Yeah. to live but uh, that it was like decide not to go to Berlin because it was too cramped uh, again it's like we were afraid we'll be end up same as in Amsterdam or London like with conditions we did not really like and then uh, Leipzig uh, got the opportunity and we knew it already from 
vegetarian in those days. Like, but we never knew Leipzig from the days that without any uh, goths around. And <laughs> then we were surprised that it didn't look that much different from. <laughs> like, oh, these people are totally alternative and were totally friendly. There yeah. were actually not too many foreigners coming outside of uh, Vegete to, to to Leipzig, and mm. we got invited in bars and in uh, free drinks. Uh, they opened the bar till till in the morning, and all mm. these these welcoming features from Leipzig and and getting to know so many people was that was uh, blew me away. You you would never get that in another town. I think I will never have that ever again. Yeah. So that was that was also one of these decisive moments. Like wow, yeah, this is our home. And quite rightfully, I'm here now for 15 years, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I, I, yeah, I, I remember that because I think when, when, when we met for the, for the last time at Moritz Bastei, I think that was in 2006 and you just moved yeah. there. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I left Leipzig in 2007. So, yeah. I, and I'm, I mean, uh, the town has changed, of course, so much since mm. then, you know, uh, with all the uh, reconstruction and all the new buildings and the new university and yeah. yada, yada, yada. But still, I'm now living in Berlin and or I've been living in Berlin since 2007. And the one thing that Leipzig absolutely got right, especially in direct comparison with Berlin, is they did not... Um, fuck up their their uh, restructuring of the city and combining the old with the new. We have so many ugly parts in town now over here. The whole East Side mm. Gallery and so on. It's like it's it's a it's a walk of shame. You know, it's just corp. <laughs> it's a it's just corporate. It's just yeah. ugly. And it yeah. doesn't reflect the the soul and 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 heritage and history of the city, mm. whereas in in Leipzig everything seems to be seems to gel very well, and, and it, it seems like people actually thought of thought before they did something, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is nice for a change, you know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that was kind of like my sentiment always with Berlin. It's like yeah. the, the the nice parts are easily to explore in an hour, and that that's it. And in Leipzig, you can. I actually was funny enough uh, yesterday driving around, uh, getting some video locations, and yeah. so I ended up just driving spontaneously in areas where I not was familiar with and finding some really interesting things. So it's like even I live here for so long time, I still haven't really entirely discovered Leipzig, but and there's still lots of things to discover than the usual things. I miss Leipzig so much. Yeah. I was Next going year. every ten years to VGT, ten years mm -hmm. in a row. Yeah. This yeah. is going to be like the the second year, nothing happening. This is gonna be like very depressing. For yes. a lot of people, also for me yeah. personally, it's like we are scheduled to play for the second time round, and I, I don't know what they're going to do the third time round. I'm sure they say again the same lineup because I know all the other festivals they also are uh, postponed again, like Nero yeah. Luna and uh, you know you name it. So it's, it's a kind of like a hopeless situation at the moment. It's like uh, since since everyone still considers uh, people as uh, walking virus bags, then. <laughs> Who needs to be uh, jabbed before they can go and interact with each other? Then it's like we are still a way, a long way away from from where we are. And yeah, you possibly need to show your pass at the door, like that you had like a vaccination, yes or no? Yeah, that's that's where we're heading. That's what I think. 
I believe so too. Yeah. Mm. Unless the virus disappears completely, mutates in a, in, <laughs> into something which is not that it infects, but not uh, kill people or put them into uh, yeah. hospitals anymore, which ha happened yeah. before in the past. We'll see. So far, yeah. as musicians, we are powerless. We are voiceless. Even we can't do anything. This uh, can't even dem uh, join a demonstration because what we go, what would we uh, demand? To play live, it's uh, it, yeah. it would be a silly demand. So yeah. we have to uh, stick it out. Um, we stick it out this way as best as we can. And as long as as we, uh, the audience, can get a new album, you know, this year uh, out of you, out of your creative juices that uh, started to flow because of that whole situation. I mean, it's always I'm always trying to see at least the the the, the slightest positive thing things in in an otherwise very dire situation. You know, I think so. I think so too because I think this album could not be released next. I you know if I would be clever, I'd say oh, I'll wait for another year because you know mm. then we can work the other album first but this album has to see the light of day this year because it's all about all this these feelings i don't know what the feelings are next year and it might yeah. be obsolete this is i had feeling i have to say about it here and now and it has to yeah. get out fast i don't even care how it would go but this is what i want to say this is what i feel and this yeah. is what i want Understood. to do looking forward to hearing that single <laughs> you're a <laughs> good teaser <laughs> yeah Yes, thank you, Ronnie. That was a great yeah. interview. I yeah. really appreciate it. Thank you so Wonderful. much. Also, from if, if I, I'd be wearing a hat, I'd tip my cap right now. Thank you very <laughs> much, Mr. Moorings. Uh, always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. I hope in to a, see you both soon in Leipzig again. In the, yes, in the yeah, Vegas yeah. With so, a beer in hand or two or five. Yeah. yeah, that's something one can only dream of right now. Let's cross a finger. That's going to be 2022. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. I also hope that the postponed show uh, from Berlin, I think it was at Franz Club or something, yeah. that it also will happen again, hopefully in 2022. We do our best. We keep on rescheduling and pushing things backwards. I think all yeah. the clubs are doing that. They, no one is really booking any new acts. They just no, rescheduling. Pushing, pushing the bands back. So you basically you'll end up with your tour of 2020 in 2022 most likely maybe with a here and there show i'm still having high hopes for a show in the hennessy's like on an airport mm -hmm. airfield and it's not like uh mira luna with the 30,000 people but maybe like over a thousand people but yeah, I was spread, on, yeah. spread mm -hmm. on a very uh, big big area so that could be uh, is feasible also like uh, we're booked for again the circus tent with the, all the hygiene uh, so like 2000 people you pay possibly for 250 or 500 depending on the the, the r value uh, <laughs> it seems like like actually when you say all these things like we all like little virus experts these days like what what absolutely yeah. how the aerosols are going to spread and yes. what you can and cannot do that's uh, so yeah, we might be all getting like DR in front of our name uh, next yeah. year. It has a very uh, been it has been a very self-educating year, <laughs> that's for sure. So yeah. Y yes. Thank you for listening to the Postpunk Podcast Episode 3 with Ronnie Moorings of Clan of Zymox. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and support us on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash postpunk. That is patreon.com slash postpunk. We can't do this without your support, so thank you. 
I'd also like to thank Jason Corbett from Actors for the intro music, Corinne for the outro music, and Jenna, our producer. Jenna, you're amazing. I'd also like to thank our editors, Frank Deserto and Andy Harriman. Love you guys. You guys are awesome. And of course, contributing editor Thomas Tissen for being my co-host on this episode. Thomas, this was fun. Let's do it again very soon. I'd also like to thank my father, Bill Baker, for assisting with editing this episode. Thanks, Dad. So until next time, please visit our website, post-punk.com. That is post-punk.com for music news, video premieres, and more. Once again, thanks, everyone. Cheers.